The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Part-Time Genius, a production of iHeartRadio. Guess what, Will? What's that, Mango? So I heard this fact yesterday that a lot of buildings in New York lie about how tall they are. The buildings are lying about how tall they are? (laughs) Well, maybe it's the builders, but they exaggerate about their buildings. So you know how guys have this reputation for lying about their height, right? Of course. So in New York City, builders will lie about how tall their buildings are to attract a certain clientele, which is weird to me. And people just buy it, I guess. They do because the way they trick people is with the elevators. Unless you're going to count each and every floor, the only way you're going to interact with all the floors is through the buttons on the elevators, right? Yeah. Some of this tends to be innocent. Some builders skip the 13th floor because they're superstitious. So you get someone talking about like a 15-story building when it's only 14 stories. But other builders love the grandeur. The first example that comes up when you Google this phenomena is Trump Tower. (laughs) Though the owner and his family supposedly live on the 66th through 68th floor, the building is actually 10 floors shorter than that. It's only 58 stories. You know, I feel like I've seen this in other places too. Like when you walk past first class in a plane and you're like, those are rows one through four. And then you go back to where we're trying to sit and it's immediately (laughs) like... The 10th row? Yeah, exactly. It's so (laughs) weird. But I'm curious in terms of the buildings, like how do they hide the 10 floors? It's very similar. So the building has a huge, beautiful atrium with a tall ceiling, but the elevators start counting from floors 30 instead of 20, which is the actual height. Trump Tower also does this where it's supposed to be 90 floors, but if you stand at the top, it's only 72 stories high. It's a really common phenomena. And the way the buildings trick you is through the elevators. You know, elevators are an interesting topic. And I think there's a lot to talk about here from why it's so awkward to ride an elevator with strangers to whether the closed door button actually does anything to most importantly, why are all elevators named Otis? This has always puzzled me. So we've got a lot to cover. Let's dive in.
Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mangesh Hatikader. And on the other side of that soundproof glass, dressed like a lift operator from the 1950s, and he's adjusting his desk chair up and down. I mean, it's really impressive. He's actually hinted that he was looking forward to this, and he has really lived up to the challenge here. That's our good pal and producer, Lowell. Lowell, you are looking good. So, Mango, what is our first stop on this elevator tour? So actually, before we kick off, I've got a little bit of housekeeping to tie up. In our last episode on nine comic book heroes, we talked about this terrible character, the Red Bee, and his secret weapon, this ridiculous trained bee named Michael, mm-hmm. who, you know, if, if you'll remember, he'd keep him in his belt and unleash him on villains. But one of our listeners on Twitter, Charles Poor, pointed out that male bees don't sting. That's a very good point. Yeah, yeah. It only makes Michael seem more useless. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. That just makes it that much better, though. So thank you so much, Charles. If you DM me your address, I'll send you a small package of honey as a thank you. But back to elevators. And I want to go back to a time when elevators were a little more dangerous. Yeah, so I know modern elevators started to take shape. I guess it was, you know, as early as the 1850s. But were they around long before that? Like when exactly was the first elevator made? So it, it kind of depends on your definition. But if you take just the basic concepts of an elevator, like a machine that can lift things vertically, then you're probably talking about a few thousand years ago. For instance, it, it's possible that the Egyptians used vertical lifts to build their pyramids. But that's still speculation. Like the first recorded use of a vertical lift, that comes from the third century BCE. And this is when the mathematician Archimedes built a platform that could be hoisted up and down using ropes and pulleys. Now, these early lifts obviously didn't run on electricity. Instead, they were powered by people, animals in some cases, even water. They also weren't used as people movers. Instead, the hoists were mostly used to lift building materials or or water jugs. And it wasn't until a few centuries later that primitive elevators were finally used to transport living creatures. This was in the first century CE, when Roman gladiators and wild animals would ride the lifts from the lower levels up to the floor of the Colosseum. All right, so even then, most people probably wouldn't have trusted their lives to an elevator, I would assume, at least at that point. And they were considered safe enough, though, for enslaved combatants and lions or whatever, but the average citizen would have probably chosen the stairs still. Definitely. And and there was just still too much room for error when you had, uh, you know, people or donkeys pulling the ropes. People didn't really start using elevators by choice until more reliable systems were developed. For instance, in uh, 1743, King Louis XV had one of the earliest passenger elevators installed in the palace at Versailles. He was a ladies' man, and the private elevator was an easy way for his mistress to visit him in secret. And he referred to it as a flying chair. Basically, all you had to do to operate it was to pull a cord connected to a pulley system, and and from there, gravity and a series of counterweights would do the rest. That's pretty clever, I guess. Yeah, and and in the early 1800s, steam actually gets incorporated. And this ends up being super helpful because steam-powered lifts were able to move much heavier loads. You're thinking about things like coal or lumber and steel. um, And suddenly, this could all be raised hundreds of feet in a matter of seconds. This new capacity led to major booms in construction and mining, and and it's actually a big part of what made the Industrial Revolution so transformative. But uh, steam-powered elevators still had one major flaw. They were really dangerous, like super dangerous. And, And if a rope snapped, the lift would just plummet. And unfortunately, that happened pretty often all through the first half of the 19th century. Right, and it's around that halfway point that an entrepreneur and inventor named Elisha Otis enters the picture. We mentioned that name earlier. And he got into the elevator game in 1852 while working on a project for a company that made bed frames. 
So the client needed a way to move heavy manufacturing equipment to the second floor of its factory. There was only one problem, though, and that was that the equipment they were moving was so heavy that the lifting cables couldn't bear the weight for all that long. So there was this constant risk that the cables were going to snap, and if that happened, there would be nothing to stop the elevator from plunging straight to the ground floor. Mm -hmm. So Otis's solution to the problem was to develop the world's first safety device for elevators. It was basically like a brake system that functioned as a fail-safe for the lift. So if the cable should break, the loss of tension would trigger the release of these levers on either side of the elevator car, and then these levers would lock into these series of grooves that were along the vertical rails of the elevator, and that would sort of arrest the fall and, and lock the car in place. So it's pretty innovative. That's pretty amazing. So, so I, I just want to make sure I have this straight. Like, the vertical rails were already part of the elevator design, right? Like... They just didn't have that like locking system built into them until Otis came along. Yeah, that's right. I mean, all of the elevators of the era were were braced on either side by these vertical rails that helped keep the car steady as it was going up or down. And so those rails were completely smooth, though. So if a cable broke, the car would just slide right down the rails in free fall, which would obviously be wow. dangerous and terrifying. And so Otis's breakthrough was to carve grooves into the rails and create kind of a sawtoothed ratchet system that would act as these brakes. Industrial companies recognized the merits of the new braking system right away, and Otis quickly set to work on you know, filing orders for freight elevators. But the public was still unconvinced, understandably, because it is you know, such a, a, a different invention and everything. But most people viewed elevators as these death traps, and they were unlikely to be swayed from this opinion by these confusing diagrams they were seeing and all these technical explanations. So in order to really trust such a system, people would need to see it for themselves. And so at the World's Fair in 1854, Elisha Otis allowed them to do just that. So you're saying that like fairgoers were actually willing to get into these elevators and test the brake systems? No, still not at this point. But hmm. Otis thought about that. I mean, he anticipated that. And so he arranged a stunt that would instead put only one person's life on the line. And that, of course, was his own. And so... Here's what happened. You're at the Crystal Palace Exposition Hall, and Otis constructed this 50-foot wooden elevator. Then with some help from none other than P.T. Barnum himself, <laughs> Otis gathered this crowd and promised them this death-defying stunt unlike any they had ever seen. So the crowd is, you know, hyped up and everything, and Otis then dramatically rides the elevator to the very top, where he then ordered an axe-wielding assistant to cut the rope that held up the elevator. <laughs> The onlookers were stunned and sort of braced themselves for this tragic scene, but thankfully, it never came. And that's because, you know, of course, to their surprise and great relief, the platform dropped just a few inches and then came to a complete stop. Huh. The crowd was blown away by this, but they were also skeptical of how reliable the system really was. And, you know, they thought maybe Otis just got insanely lucky and there was no guarantee that the brakes would work a second time. So Otis performed the stunt again and again and again. Every hour of the day that the fair was open, he performed this stunt. And in this way, little by little, one crowd at a time, Otis won over the public and convinced them that elevators were at long last safe to ride. That is such an amazing stunt. Like it's such an amazing PR thing yeah. that all you're basically doing is riding an elevator. 
<laughs> Pretty amazing. But, uh, you, you know, I, I, I'm guessing this was a turning point for Otis. Like, I, I read that the first passenger elevator to use his brake system was installed in New York in uh, 1857. So it was still about three years after the fair. But, but then the floodgates really open. And within 16 years, more than 2,000 passenger elevators were operating all across the country. Yeah, there was definitely a snowball effect to all of this. And, you know, sadly, Otis actually didn't live long enough to see just how widely embraced his invention became. He passed away in 1861, uh, just a few years after his first elevator was installed in New York. But his sons did carry on the family business uh, along with others, and, and, and they worked to make improvements on that original design, including the switch to hydraulic power and eventually, of course, to electricity. Now, all of this innovation helped secure the elevator's place as one of the most highly trafficked transport systems in the world. And that's not an exaggeration. According to the LA Times, the world's elevators now move the equivalent of the Earth's population every 72 hours. Wow. So if you think about that, every three days, over seven and a half billion people take a ride on an elevator. That is not something I'd even comprehended. That's pretty remarkable. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really crazy. And it's especially true of Otis elevators, which are still going strong today. For example, the elevators in the Eiffel Tower are Otis elevators. So are the ones in the Empire State Building, the White House, the Vatican, the Kremlin. Huh. I mean, the list goes on and on. And the company is now one of the two largest elevator manufacturers in the world. And that's why if you step into an elevator today, the chances are you will find that Otis name inscribed on the walls there. Which makes a lot more sense than all the elevators in the world being nicknamed Otis. But uh, I, right. I, I, I think we should talk some more about the rapid growth phase that elevators went through near the turn of the 20th century. You actually mentioned that there were a couple thousand spread across the country by the early 1870s. But the majority of those were still being used in industrial settings. And, and you'd find the safety elevators in, in coal mines or construction sites, but it was still pretty rare to see one in an office building or apartment complex. Yeah, the average person didn't come into contact with elevators all that often. And that finally starts to change in the 1870s, though, as business owners began adding elevators to their office buildings and and that's really what launched the invention into its next phase, where you start to see all the architectural and cultural impacts that elevators have had. Yeah, I mean, it's wild to think about how different the cities we know would look if it weren't for elevators, mm -hmm. like no skyscrapers, high-rise apartments, like all the buildings would just be a few stories tall. Yeah, it's funny when you look back and realize that higher floors would, you know, they used to be the least desirable spaces in a building. Like today we connect higher floors with a sense of luxury. They're more private, farther removed from the noise of the streets, you know, not to mention those bird's eye view of the skyline. But before elevators made them more accessible, those top floors were seen as inconvenient. Like, in fact, they were typically set aside for either low rent tenants or like the in-house janitor. So how many stairs you had to climb to get to your apartment was really kind of a status signifier, like the fewer, obviously, the better. Exactly. And, and, and so when elevators came along, not only did those higher floors get much more appealing and, and much more valuable, they also got much higher. So thanks to the advent of steel frame construction and, of course, thanks to elevators, buildings could suddenly be built much taller than before. This basically meant that anyone who owned a building no longer needed to fight for new land to develop on. Like, that's something that's always in short supply in cities. Instead, they could simply build upwards new offices, hotel rooms, retail space. Like, there's nothing but air above. 
So in a way, elevators literally shaped the cities we know today. I actually found this great quote from this guy named Patrick Karajat, and he's the founder of the Elevator Museum in New York. And according to him, quote, if we didn't have elevators, we would have a megalopolis, one continuous city stretching from Philadelphia to Boston, because everything would be five or six stories tall. Yeah, it's interesting to think about as this choice between a sprawling horizontal city or this more densely clustered vertical one. And it reminds me of this cool Boston Globe article that talked about a kind of invisible war between elevators and cars that's been going on for the past century or so. So the idea is that you have these two new technologies that were basically pushing us in two different directions. On the one side, you had cars, which allowed people to travel horizontally. And on the other, you had elevators, which of course moved people vertically. And city planners had to choose which of these new technologies they were going to get behind, which you know, which one they were going to focus on developing their cities around. And if you looked up an American city during the last hundred years, it's pretty obvious, you know, which one they picked. Definitely. But it's not like cars were left by the wayside or anything. Like elevators may have won the battle to shape cities, but cars are still the, you know, transportation of choice in suburbs where the sprawl is is much less of an issue. Yeah, I guess in the end, it's, it's sort of been a draw in that sense between those two. But all right, so we've seen how elevators have evolved over the years, and I feel like we should check out a few things about them that have actually stayed the same. But before we get to that, let's take a quick break. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about the eccentricities of elevator etiquette. All right, Mango, so we talked about the elevator's effect on our architecture and daily routines. Now let's talk about how elevators affected the people who rode them. Because when you think about it, passenger elevators really created a new kind of social situation, like one that's strangely intimate yet impersonal at the same time. It's always a little bit weird to be in an elevator mm-hmm. full of people or even more weird to be with one person. But, <laughs> you know, this new dynamic raised all kinds of questions about what was proper behavior when riding an elevator. The one hot debate, for example, was whether a man should remove his hat while riding in an elevator with a woman. You know, I'm sure you think mm-hmm. about this all, all the time, time and really worry about like, <laughs> should he take his hat off as he would in a restaurant or leave it on as he would, you know, on a train or a bus? I mean, it's a lot to think about. I, I don't think I even realized you're supposed to leave your hat on on a bus, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, leave it on. But it's interesting because uh, restaurants and buses are both examples of public spaces, right? So for elevators, it was really more about whether they were a mode of transportation or just another room in a building, albeit a moving room. So it's kind of a tough call because both descriptions are are technically a fit for that. Yeah, it's true. And I I think that was really what threw people. Like the elevator was a mode of transportation inside a building. So which set of rules do you follow? Now, unlike riding a bus, riding an elevator brought unclear expectations for social interaction. Like even if you don't know the other passengers, you know that they live or work in the same building as you. And so there's this sense that you should at least acknowledge that in some way, whether by nodding or smiling or making small talk or whatever. Right, but we never want to be the person to make that call, right? Like everyone wants to wait for the other person to make the first move in those situations. So it always creates this, I don't know, like anxiety or tension or something. No, I don't know. I usually just go ahead and get in and get everybody a hug and just (laughs) kind of get that out of the way. (laughs) Exactly. And it feels like now more than 150 years after their invention, we still haven't gotten over those feelings of, of discomfort. It's like despite all the advances in elevator design, the one thing we can't seem to resolve is, is this inherent awkwardness of taking this short ride with other strangers. So I, I am curious if you know what causes that, like, like what, what makes it feel so awkward. Yeah, I was definitely curious about this. This was actually one of the first things we were looking into this week. And it turns out there are a few reasons. So one deals with something that international tourists hear a lot, which is that we Americans love our personal space. Mm -hmm. So typically we like to keep at least an arm's length of distance between us and other people. 
And the elevator is one of the rare places where that's not always possible. And so that's, you know, what brings on some of that awkwardness. Now, the other thing, though, is is a bit more universal, and that's that most of us are at least a little bit anxious of being trapped in a steel box, which may sound <laughs> obvious. And, and not only that, you're dangling from a roof by, by this cable, and that's despite the fact that elevators are actually super safe. In fact, they are one of the safest ways to travel, period. So, for example, about 1,900 people die taking the stairs each year, which is just a really bizarre fact, but... According to Consumer Watch, there are only about 27 elevator-related deaths per year worldwide. Now, i got to be honest, I, I wouldn't have even known it was, it was that much. And yeah. considering that elevators make roughly 18 billion trips each year, according to the LA Times, that works out to an exceptionally low fatality rate. It's about a uh, 0.0000015% per trip. So... You know, the awkwardness you feel in an elevator is very real, but the sense of danger, not so much. Well, I mean, that definitely tracks with what I learned this week about the origin of elevator music. So I, I'd always assumed that the music was there to calm people's nerves and, and make them less worried about going, you know, something going wrong. But according to elevator historians, of which there are actually a great many I found out this week, elevator music was really invented to help alleviate boredom and to fill that awkward silence that comes from riding a lift with strangers. I do kind of like the awkward silence was just assumed. Like, of course, people will choose that over small talk with a stranger, you know? I know, and I, I guess building owners were like, we know you aren't going to talk to each other, so here's some music to fill that void where where I guess the human interaction is supposed to go. I mean, it's too bad it doesn't, doesn't really work. I mean, in reality, there is no escaping the awkward or at least not until you hit the close door button really quickly when you see a stranger coming just to avoid the whole situation entirely. So here's the thing I learned about that. You know, it, it turns out that closing the elevator door on a stranger doesn't really work. And that's because the closed door button in most American elevators is ineffective. It actually, I guess, sort of makes sense. I, I, I always suspected that was the case, but is this by design or do the buttons just malfunction a lot or like what, what's happening here? It is by design. So the, the reason why is pretty interesting. Uh, apparently, when the Americans with Disabilities Act was first passed in 1990, it included a list of requirements for elevators. And these were things like raised buttons, braille signs. And another requirement was that elevator doors had to remain open for at least three seconds. And that way, someone with a disability would have enough time to get inside before the doors closed. Some manufacturers complied with the law by ensuring that the closed door buttons don't cut that time short, but others just went a step further and deactivated the button entirely just to cover their bases. Still, there are some exceptions to this. New York City has a law that requires that all elevators have to have a working closed door button, but the buttons are on a delay, so it kind of defeats the purpose. And of course, other countries have their own laws about closed door buttons. So like all the ones in England are fully functional, for instance. I mean, it makes you wonder why our elevators even have these. If they're all deactivated, why why bother with having them anyway? I think part of it is like a placebo effect. Like having a button to mash just makes us feel a little bit more in control of the situation, yeah. especially where when we're in a rush or like, you know, whatever. But, you know, elevators aren't the only place that we see this kind of thing. So according to Mental Floss, uh, and this is what they wrote, quote, buttons placed at city crosswalks are often disabled. And the thermostats in many office buildings are rigged so that the temperatures can't be altered, even if the numbers appear to change. I mean, it's a little annoying, but I can also, uh, you know, see the logic there. Like, people can be pretty impatient, and having this button to push does help pass the time, I guess, even if it's not actually doing anything. Yeah, I mean, who doesn't like pushing buttons? 
Well, there's at least one other good thing about elevator rides that I did want to mention. And, and strangely enough, it stems from that social awkwardness that we've been talking about. But before we get to that, let's take one last quick break. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Part-Time Genius. So, okay, well, so, so you piqued my interest before the break. And you've got to tell me, what's the upside to an awkward encounter in an elevator? 
Well, in a word, the upside is serendipity. I mean, that the nature of the experience encourages these, these sort of chance developments. And sometimes they turn out to be really good ones. And you never quite know what will happen in an elevator. And so by being squeezed into this small space with a stranger, even for a brief moment, we're forced to think about and respond to somebody else's existence. And that's something we don't have to do very often outside of the elevator. Is that true? Because it feels like I interact with strangers in public spaces all the time. Like if I go to a restaurant or, or if I'm in a checkout line. Well, that's true. But in, in those cases, the interactions are, are pretty predetermined if you think about it. Like you know that you'll be interacting with a waiter or a cashier or whoever it may be. And you know what to expect when you do. Like you'll talk about food options or how much something costs. But apart from small intentional encounters like that, most of us are actually pretty isolated in public spaces. You know, we're either in our cars or at our desk or, or maybe you're out and about and, you know, and you see people, but our eyes are sort of glued to our phone screens and all of that acts as a barrier between us and these unprescribed interactions. But in an elevator, all bets are off. Like you never know who's going to step in that box with you or what they might say or do when they're in there. And so that's a good thing. I mean, at, at least in theory, that, that uncertainty is probably where a good deal of the awkwardness stems from, but it's also the catalyst for some lucky breaks. So think about how many romantic comedies you've seen where somebody stumbles into their soulmate in an elevator or how many success yeah. stories started with an elevator pitch to a CEO who couldn't get away because they're right there in this box with you. And it's called an elevator pitch. Exactly. And it, you know, if that still doesn't convince you that the potential awkwardness is worth it, take it from science. So researchers have long looked to elevators for insight into all kinds of social behavior, like how smiling improves our willingness to stand near strangers or how standing in the back is a power play because it lets you observe all the other passengers. So elevators are this fertile environment for experimentation, and that's exactly because they force us out of our comfort zones. That's really interesting. I, I have thought about like elevator experiments and like, you know, the one where you're facing the opposite way or whatever, but I didn't realize that they're such a smart place to like, you know, investigate interactions. It does make me think though, like, you know, there are these newfangled elevators that with these new inventions and, and it makes you wonder about how society will interact after that. And, and why do you say that? Well, I don't know if you, well, I'm sure you've seen these actually. Uh, there's this thing called destination dispatch, and it's basically a way to group together passengers who have similar destinations. It's not like the current system where, where you step into an elevator and then request the floor you want in, from inside the elevator. Instead, you select the floor outside from this touch screen in the lobby, and then you're directed to an elevator car that's headed in your direction. Yeah, I feel like we've seen these, you know, in, in a lot of the the sort of newer, fancier office buildings in New York these days. Yeah, Condé Nast is one example. But, you, you know, the system is obviously meant to cut down on wasted time and energy. But from what you've been saying, like, it, it sounds like it might cut down on that serendipity as well. If everyone is bound for the same floor, it, it's, it's a lot less likely that a mailroom clerk has that opportunity to bump into the executive who who, you know, might implement or be influenced by their idea. I mean, that is kind of a bummer, unless, of course, you're someone who is just tired of being accosted by mail clerks. I mean, it's a, <laughs> it's a big problem these days, Mango. But I, I don't want to give the impression that the elevator's best days are behind it. In fact, there are some new advancements that I'm actually looking forward to checking out myself, which feels strange to say about elevators, but but it's true. So just to think about some examples here. You know, a company in Germany has been working on a new kind of elevator that moves up and down the rails using this magnetic levitation system instead of cables. 
And so not only would this improve efficiency by allowing multiple cars to operate in the same shaft since you know, they no longer need their own cables, it would also greatly reduce the amount of energy it takes to run them. And if none of that is a hook enough for you, consider this. A traditional elevator can only move up and down along the axis of its cable. But a maglev elevator isn't restricted by cables, which means it can also move horizontally <laughs> as well as vertically. So you could build this complete loop inside a building and even have elevators move between shafts in order to find like the fastest route to where they needed to be. That's fascinating. So it's basically like real-world wonkavators. Yeah, pretty much. And it, it might still be a while before we can travel like Willy Wonka, but scientists are hard at work on it. I'm, I'm pretty sure of this. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to that one. But before we head out, why don't we uh, do the fact off? So did you know it's illegal to pee in an elevator in Singapore? I mean, I, I assume it's illegal to pee in an elevator in, in Singapore. Yeah, okay. Well, you're, you're pretty smart, <laughs> I know, but everybody might not know that. But there's more to it. So elevators there come equipped with a urine detection device. So they're taking this to another level. So, no pun intended there. So if you do pee, it sets off an alarm and the doors slam shut. And then you just have to wait there in shame until the police <laughs> arrive to ticket you. I've got to be honest, like, I know they go overboard with a lot of things, but I do actually kind of find this amazing. I really hope they come up with a contraption to do that at their pools too. Like all of a sudden this like <laughs> yeah. cover and you're closes stuck. you in. All the water drains out and then you're just standing there. <laughs> uh, speaking of bathrooms, did you know that uh, Japan is actually considering putting toilets and running water in their elevators? Huh. While that sounds like an unnecessary luxury, there's actually a reason for it. The country has a ton of earthquakes. And when that happens, the elevators just get stuck. So it's to offer a little bit of relief and dignity in those like hours that you might be stuck in an elevator. That actually, when you first said it, it was confusing. But you know what? That that actually does make a lot of sense. And that's that's thoughtful to do that. All right, so here's one I, I love. So during the French resistance, the French severed the cables to the Eiffel Tower elevator so that Hitler wouldn't take a photo op at the top of it. Apparently, the idea of climbing over 1,500 stairs was just enough to keep him away. That's crazy. Do you know there's a subculture of elevator enthusiasts? And it is really, really sweet. It, it, it's often people on the autism spectrum and they bond over their love of elevators. So they film the buttons, they capture how the motors sound and were. They document their rides on pretty normal elevators. And sometimes it's narrated and sometimes it isn't. But Slate did an article on this and the author wrote, quote, while I have never found my journeys in real life elevators to be particularly therapeutic, I find these videos very soothing. I could see that. That's pretty neat. All right. So you've heard of the Burj Khalifa. You know, that's 160 oh, stories, yeah. like 830 meters tall, I think. Massive. Yeah. That's the first time I've ever uh, measured something in meters, but I, <laughs> I forgot to convert that. So we'll, we'll let Charles or one of the listeners weigh in and, and give us that fact. So, all right. So get this. Apparently it's so tall that you can watch the same sunset or sunrise in the same day. Like you, you watch it from the ground and then you take their super fast elevator to the top of the building 
and you can actually catch it again. Oh man, that is unbelievable. Do you remember when we went to go see that eclipse in Nashville? Yeah, of course. I remember thinking like, I wasn't that interested in the phenomena. And then I saw it and it was so beautiful. And I like immediately wanted to jet forward and see it again. You know, like yep. I feel like that, yep. that kind of has that same feel. Oh, totally. That's a great fact. I'm going to give you today's trophy. Uh, you know what? I'll take it. I feel like it's been a little while. So I, this, <laughs> this feels really good. All right. Well, thanks to all of our listeners out there for tuning in. We know how hard it is to be stuck in your home. So thank you for inviting us in with you. That's going to do it for today's part-time genius. For myself, Mango, Gabe, and Lowell, take care. We'll be back soon with another episode. Part-Time Genius is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today.